1: Welcome to another special episode of Inside the Firm. This was another brutal week out on the job site. So Alex and I decided to do another remote interview and actually it was just Alex. So um, I hope you enjoy it. He interviewed Kelly Coyne, the founder and partner at Grit Ventures, which is a venture capitalist group. Uh, So, you know, anybody who's doing the the development side of things, anybody who's trying to raise money to start uh, any kind of company who listens to this podcast should be very interested in it. Um, Even if if, down the road, maybe five, ten years, I think you'll find value in this episode. Um, I also have a special announcement. I would like to welcome our latest and newest sponsor, uh, Dell.com. And so they just signed a a, uh, sponsorship deal with us. They're going to provide us with um, some wonderful pieces of uh, hardware, some new computers, which is super exciting. And so if you head over to dell.com forward slash inside the firm, you can use our special link code for some awesome discounts on brand new hardware. Uh, So we've used Dell uh, computers and monitors for over a decade, and uh, they've never let us down. Um, they've always performed very well. They last a long time. So when you're over on that, if you're on that p- webpage, if you click, uh, there's a button, if you scroll down, it is Save now, and how, do, and how does it work? It works by, you can choose the type of product be- uh, below, you know, that webpage that meets your needs. Click on the link to generate a coupon that will then be emailed to you, copy that coupon, follow the email link to shop online, and there you have it. So uh, we're happy to have Dell on board. Again, if you go to dell.coms forward slash inside the firm, um, you can select the technology you need to fuel your business. You can also call their team at 1-800-757-8442. Uh, so uh, also, you know, the time has come. Maybe maybe you're gathering product and material information for your next project. Let's say you're tasked with finding the top gas fireplace manufacturers and they need to have CAD, BIM, and specifications. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a search engine that showed you who had the product data you need? There is. It's ArcCat.com, the number one most used website for finding building product information. Search for a product or even a CSI section and get a list of manufacturers and the data they offer. Even better, you can download all that technical data for free. You don't even have to register to use Arcad. Save your firm time, money, and frustration and go to ArcCat.com to start building better content today. That's A-R-C-A-T.com, archive.com.
0: All right, listeners, I'm here with Kelly Coyne, and I got her recommendation from Michelle. Uh, Michelle basically said that Kelly is an early-stage venture capitalist that specializes in labor shortages in 3D, jobs that are dirty, dull, or dangerous. One of her primary focuses is the construction industry. She's invested in a number of early-stage construction robotic companies. Uh, You'd be hard-pressed to find someone who can talk about robotics in construction better than Kelly can. She also has great insight on what it takes to run a company. So that is a great review for you, Kelly. (laughs) Well,
2: she is my best friend, so she has to say
0: nice things. That is funny. Is she actually your best friend?
2: She is. We grew up next door to each other.
0: Oh, that is that is amazing. That is so cool. Um, so, take us back. Where where? What city is next door? And and how did you get from you know a little five year old to in this industry that you're in?
2: <laughs> well, I think like most people, you kind of accidentally happen into a series of events in your life until you find the right app for you. That's the most interesting career Um, I'm actually from Colorado I grew up in Highlands Ranch and um, I did not start off thinking any of this would be my path Uh, I actually went to CU Boulder Um, I I hear you guys are involved there I am as well still I'm uh, on the computer science advisory board for the university uh, and I'm also a Techstars Boulder mentor
0: Perfect.
2: Uh, so I find myself back your way often.
0: That's crazy that that we have this connection because we're in Longmont. We teach at in two departments in Boulder, uh, architectural engineering and environmental design. So this is great. So you're from Boulder, and then now where are you at? Well, you're from you're so, from Highlands, but you went yeah. to CU.
2: So I um, so actually so I, I live in Silicon Valley now. So I went to see Boulder and I got my degree in integrative physiology, uh, pre med essentially. Uh, a degree that I never, ever used. Uh, (laughs) While I was out there, I took an internship in telco and realized I really loved business. So I started at Level 3 Communications uh, right in Broomfield. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with it. It got bought by CenturyLink.
0: I am, actually, yeah. Yep.
2: So while I was out there, I ended up kind of leaning into the technical realm. Um, By the time I left, I was the product manager for virtual private networks for the company. I went and got my MBA at Oxford. While I was out there, I was fortunate enough to meet the founder of Polycom, probably the uh, conference phone that you've spoken into at every conference you've ever been in. Um, Looks like a spaceship. And uh, he was starting a new Wi-Fi hardware uh, stealth mode company out in Silicon Valley. And he asked me to move out here and help him build the company. So I stayed with that company through over 100 employees, $100 million valuation, eight products launched, six in market, and then left and moved into a garage with five AI PhDs. We were building an autonomous flying robot, otherwise known as a drone. Um, The robot was named Lily. It is both famous and infamous, uh, but really learned a lot during that time. And after I left there, I looked around Silicon Valley, and I realized there was a tremendous amount of talent in early stage uh, software and figuring out how to go to market there, but very little in hardware. So I started a consulting firm that focused in deep tech. early stage, helping people understand how to go from concept to launch with a deep tech idea. It was during that time, I met my partner, Jennifer, who is a hardware engineer and has been an early stage venture capitalist for 20 years, and we launched Grit Ventures.
0: That that sounds awesome. I've always heard a phrase, um, hardware is hard. Have you heard that?
2: (laughs) We hear it constantly. Um, I like to say it is hard, but it's getting easier.
0: What are some of the things that are making it easier?
2: So there's a number of different things. And realize I specialize in robotics. Um, One of the big things that's made hardware a lot easier is that the componentry from China has gotten so low cost that you're able to build that initial prototype in your garage. So we're seeing when when people think about robots, they tend to think about the big robots in car manufacturing places, and they think about a $250,000 to a $1 million robot. We tend to see robotics that we see in construction and agriculture now ranging between $2,000 and $15,000 a piece.
0: Yeah. Well, th- that actually l- relates to, and, and they say hardware is hard, I think, in Silicon Valley, because that's in relationship to, to software. And I know that software is also difficult, but I, I almost relate software to designing a building. That if we have to move something or delete something, yeah, that's work. But when you're out in the field, you know, from my perspective or from a hardware perspective, and you need to, Uh, take away two by fours and break up cement because you did it wrong. That's, that's hard. And if you have to throw away a piece of hardware because something didn't get worse, worked right. And if it wasn't cheaper coming in, it, it could really blow some budgets really quickly.
2: Absolutely. I think that, you know, the hardest hardware is actually consumer because number one, it has to be beautiful. So your component, uh, pieces, cost goes way up. Uh, And then also your margins are slimmer because you're dealing with very price sensitive consumers and competing with China. Um, And then also you only get one try to make it right. The great part about when you deal with B2B hardware and robotics is that you're generally piloting with companies and you're able to iterate on the scene.
0: Yeah, that, that sounds great. Um, So in in the architecture industry, um, there, there's a couple main components of, of, of any building. The foundation, the, the wood structure or metal, metal structure, um, you could use steel too, and then all, all, all the finish work. Where, where do you see the robotic technology currently integrated, not only with maybe the software, but also what is it doing out in what can it do out in the field?
2: Absolutely. So it's a really interesting time to be in the world of construction robotics. Um, a lot of people kind of asked, why is this the moment for robotics? Why are we suddenly seeing this explosion onto the scene? Uh, and there's three factors. Number one, the decreased cost of hardware, as I mentioned. Number two, uh, software has Changed dramatically in the sense that we have the robotic operating system 1.0 and 2.0 that's really given people a base layer of software off which to work on. Uh, This really accelerates time to market and it's making it so that we're seeing this huge influx of robots in a very short time. And then the third thing, and this is what's most interesting, is we're seeing a ton of labor shortages. And this is how we're seeing construction firms willing to actually bring in technology rather than this. Stagnation we've seen on that front for the last 40 years or so.
0: Yeah, I, I feel it every day. I'm I'm literally in a dust ball because I just came from the the job site and. <laughs> Not only is there in construction, it's organization of who goes first, when do people come, and then if they show up. So not only do you have to find the people, then you have to have them show up. And literally, like, uh, they'll walk off the job if uh, drywallers, if the place isn't clear for how they want it. They'll just walk off the job and go to a different job because they don't... Basically, because somehow there's a shortage and whether that's just because there is a shortage, whether that's because everyone went to get a four year degree and not enough people got a tech degree um, or, or just worked in the industry. But there is definitely a pinch and, and, and to a broader point, too. So we work with our, our city council um, and, and work with the mayor and because they're always trying to do great uh, regulations. And in a good way, they want things to be more sustainable. They want their city to be prettier, but then they also want it to be affordable. Well, all of this kind of slows down down the process if you add all those on and and basically uh, i I have my real estate agent um, that I follow has a graft, and I promise you that this is going somewhere and it was <laughs> It was the price of the houses over the summer, you know what the medium price was, and it was going up, and then all of a sudden it, it, it came back down towards the end of the summer and I go i go what 's going on? Why is it coming down? You know you could say the market." Uh, you know there's maybe not that much demand but I didn't know that there was another tab and I clicked on the other tab and it said available units so the price was up in an N shape and the available units because of construction was in a U shape so the opposite so it was a in your face supply meets demand when you have more on the market the the price comes down and I think that's where robotics can can maybe come in and, and help and fill those voids where you might have a, a glut for some reason um and then all of a sudden you need to do a mass production because the economy is hot and you you can't train it's, it's harder to train maybe a thousand people but if you have a good training system for a robot and you have those robots you just send send the patch i'm sure i'm using the the, the wrong terminology <laughs> no it's fine
2: uh, I think that you're bringing up a really interesting point. Um, and I think you were touching on a question that you asked earlier about where we're seeing this be the most successful. Um, we, I was starting to get into this before, but because it's such a new industry, robotics in construction, people tend to be playing quite nicely together. They kind of look at the market and see where there's a void and tackle that. So we've seen everything from robotic layouts to robotic drywalling, framing. Um, Icon out of uh, Austin is printing entire houses out of uh, 3D printing them out of concrete. Um, So we're seeing a lot of these different slots. The places that we think work the best, and this alludes to what you were saying before, is areas where a robot is taking on an entire slot of a job. Not rather than taking small pieces from a d- bunch of different contractors where you'd have to peel that out of the bids, instead, they are really acting exactly as a subcontractor would act, would act. So we call this robotics as a service. And so people come on site and do exactly that. They fill in the void. One of our, um, this isn't construction as much as property management, but we have a robotic outdoor debris cleanup for corporate campuses. Mm. And they uh, they act exactly as the subcontractors did before. From the customer's standpoint, in an OpEx perspective, it's entirely seamless.
0: Gotcha. That sounds great. Do you have any advice? So we have you know over a thousand people listening, in, and they're not all architects. So th- th- actually, some, we we have some clients in the tech industry that that hired us because they listen to our podcast and they're not architects, but a majority of them um, maybe are and this advice could go for anyone if someone's in the building industry and what we like to do at our firm is we believe more responsibility leads to more rewards. So, we design a whole bunch of buildings for people too, but in our own backyard, we'll do design build and then we'll do some design build develop. So, we'll, we'll lead it ourselves. So, we're, we're getting our, our hands dirty. But Maybe, maybe you could just tailor this to me is where do you think that I should start looking? Um, to kind of test out some of these systems um, and and you know we want to be adverse to starting a whole company uh, you know we were kind of upset at us at, at our plumbers and we have a system where our firm is called f9 we have f10 f11 for different companies we're, we, we thought we'd make f2 and become a plumbing company um, <laughs> just so we could get it done but do you have any kind of first steps of, of people pioneering this where they should look where they should kind of dive into or is there a couple different avenues to go about
2: yeah i think there's a couple different so first off if you're being a developing company that's just wanting to incorporate technology into your firm uh, there are so many opportunities available particularly if you're willing to lean in and sign up for a pilot that automatically rolls over into revenue once certain metrics are hit basically when you're talking to these firms that are starting really interesting technology companies they're looking for good partners and allow them to be on site, but they also don't want to get caught in pilot hell. Uh, the other piece for a smaller firm to
0: realize... What, what do you mean by pilot hell? Could you kind of
1: explain that? <laughs> I'm
2: sorry. Uh, pilot hell is when you are just living on someone's site and giving them free service without any view to when that will become an actual paying customer. Mm. And that's kind of the opposite of what we want to see in these early stage firms. I see. But the other thing to be aware of if you're a smaller developer who's wanting to get involved in these sort of strategies is that labor shortage has really changed the opportunities for these startups. So it used to be that startups always began with a mom-and-pop firm and then moved their way up to the big guys. But with the introduction of labor shortage, they're able to have really enormous clients straight out of the gates. So you do have to be competitive and very much leaning in to be able to work with these people.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, that sounds great. Uh, I have another question to, to explore. I, I think the whole VC industry is, is pretty interesting. Um, and I think it's a, a model, a great model for, for business development. Um, Could you maybe walk us through an example of someone coming to you with an idea? Is that how it happens? Do do you go to someone else? And then from that first initial thing, what are kind of the major milestones or success stories or even a whore story to, to maybe getting your first round of funding?
2: Yeah. So I think that, you know, the first thing that I would give everyone advice on is to really understand the overall market and the terminology that people are using. Because you can really shoot yourself in the foot by just the most simple mistake of calling yourself a Series A as your first round, which is what we'd always heard was the first round. Uh, the first round now is called pre-seed. That's your first institutional money in. Those rounds are generally $1.5 to $2 million, um, and that they are the first time that venture capitalists are coming. Uh, There are several different ways to get in front of a PC, Uh, particularly when you get into the later stages, you're going to probably need an intro to even get to the top of their mailbox. Uh, People like us in the pre-seed realize that we're talking to PhDs coming out of labs and those types of folks, and so we try and make our um, email front and center, and that it's incredibly easy to get in touch with us. for the smaller firms, the best way to get in touch with the VC is their first name at URL. I'm I'm Kelly at gritventures.com and almost every early stage VC follows that same plan.
0: What's hilarious about that is I've used that trick is that at a firm that I'm trying to contact, I'll just find one person and then because sometimes it'll be their first initial and then their dot last name at whatever, and then I'll know the person I'm trying to contact. So it's just, you know, Sam S
2: You just figure out the format.
0: Yep. Okay.
2: Actually, another tip on that is there is a way of doing this. Uh, there are websites out there. I, in particular, when I'm trying to get a hold of someone, use rocketreach.co. And they, uh, they have a listing of almost any email address you can find.
0: Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Um, okay, so someone comes to you with with an idea, and, and you yeah. said normally it's PhD people. So do they have a do they have a business sense or do they just have an idea? And <laughs>
2: <laughs> so there's really two different types of uh, founders. Uh, so there's a PhD founder who knows how to build a product. They're incredibly deeply technical. They're usually walking in our door with a working prototype and at least in talks of a pilot, uh, whether that started or not. Uh, not always the same. Um, Those folks, why we like to work with them is we specialize in commercialization and helping people understand how to go to marketing. So those are really the best fit for us because we're able to to really partner with them and bring something to the table so they don't have to hire a CMO with that first check. On the flip side, there's people that are business guys and they have a market and brand vision, Um, but generally those tend to be more in the consumer type space.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, So then with you guys, they basically... Bring an idea together, um, you have a pre seed round with with some sort of valuation. Um and then probably I'm just guessing here, so correct me if I'm wrong, some metrics to success before the maybe next round or before commercialization. Is that kinda how it goes?
2: Yeah, so I so I think that, you know, everything has kind of shifted um to the extent where, you know, series A used to be when you launched and went to market. Um, Now, pre-seed is all about product market fit. It's getting that pilot down, getting those metrics uh, figured out. And generally, you are seeing revenue, at least initial revenue, before you go back for your seed round. And then Series A turns into this moment of scale where you're really expanding to a lot of different uh, customers and, uh, and, and, and deploying more. The interesting thing about that is that's why we tend to see that the new barrier is this working prototype and a pilot in flux because you are expecting revenue to occur um, during that first round, at least in some form. Very the, thing that I would, I, the biggest takeaway that I would kind of give everyone, if you're not familiar with what's been happening on the VC landscape lately, uh, I would say that I, in every Series deck I used to see, there was an entire slide dedicated to IP, um, to their proprietary technology and the patents they had. And that, I don't see that anymore. And the reason is that right now in the industry, there's so many different ways to do things. Artificial intelligence has really opened the doors for different avenues that we are seeing go-to-market traction being the real defining characteristic that gets you funded or not.
0: Yeah, I can't remember who I heard it from, but um, someone was saying, and I think it was a Boulder guy, um, maybe maybe from Techstars, but he was saying, don't come at us with all your uh, you know, e- protection stuff. It, it doesn't matter. Like That's not what, what matters anymore. Um, so yeah. I'm hearing the well, same thing from... This,
2: so the things that do matter, and this is at least the way I do is there are two things that you can look at in an early stage company, apart from the team, right? You have to be bought into the team, you have to believe in them. But aside from that, there are two things that you can look at and that's the product and the customer validation. So that's why the prototype and the pilot are so, are so important to us. And so we'll go and, you know, kick the tires on your robot and basically I'm, anytime you are showing me a demo, I'm trying to figure out how to make the robot, right? So I really know how stable or unstable it is. That's my goal. I'm expecting it to break at some point during my demo. Yep. But then, when it comes to customer validation, we want to get on the phone with your customer. We want to actually sit down and understand where is the budget coming from, how are they paying for this? And I talked about this earlier, where if you're tackling something like layout, for instance, where you're peeling out a piece of each person's bid, that's a lot more difficult to get. Um, that's a lot more difficult to get behind than something that is just taking over a taking over a subcontractor's job
0: where there are already labor shortages and you can just fit in seamlessly yeah well that sounds great that's very insightful to to then go into the customer and, and interview them I, i've never heard of that that that's great um, two, two things that you kind of touched on, but I want to dive even further is AI would how how is that being integrating I- into robotics, and is that helping? Um, let's say, for example, a, a robot that can drywall. I'm just making this up. There, sometimes you hit a metal plate behind there, and you know you just go over six inches and and. You, you don't screw into a metal metal plate, but if it was programmed to do six inches on center, then it would be screwing into metal plates or, or something like that. So is AI coming? Is that one of the things that it's advancing all these robots and, and do, do, do all these robotics have an AI kind of play with them?
2: Absolutely. So that really think of the hardware of the robot as just the candy shell that allows it to interact with the world. Artificial intelligence is the product. Uh, The previous generations of robots that we thought of in automotive manufacturing, for instance, Mm -hmm. they weren't really robots, they were just automation. They knew to go down every 10 seconds and screw in screws and come up. Whether a plate was moving beneath them or not, they would screw in screws every 10 seconds to whatever was sitting there. And that's very different. So now between, as I mentioned before, um, ROS 2.0 that came along in 2017, and allowed for some real-time understanding of the environment and control over the robots, uh, advances in computer vision and perception. All of these things are coming together in order to allow this artificial intelligence to interact with the real world in a meaningful way.
0: Is there a software that's standard that, that people could start to dive into? I think I saw at Autodesk University, I might be getting this wrong, but they were controlling uh, robots with Maya maybe and making it go in Maya and then it would, it would do that. Or is it all individual to whatever machine that you get?
2: So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of controversy on this. There. So there's kind of two schools of thought. Either you're home-growing home your own code from scratch or you are starting with a base level, uh, which is ROS, the the Robotic Operating System. Um, And that's kind of a base level of code that can get you cut off about two years of time uh, in the development of these robots. And so it's kind of the first time that there's this language that works across the board and allows you to to very easily uh, interact with different componentry, including robotic arms and all the pieces that you need to actually get it to the field.
0: Okay. okay. Is that, is that a program, um, that a quote unquote lay person could, could start to play with, or is that like literally deep coding kind of, kind of program? Well, I
2: think, you know, yes and no, like a person that just like what we thought of, like, you know, JavaScript seemed impossible. And now that's something that you can learn on code Academy. In mm. a number of weeks. I mean, when HTML first came out, like that seemed like advanced code. <laughs>
0: right. Um, so
2: anything that you haven't started before is going to be
0: advanced. But there are resources out there that
2: you can start learning. And many of them free and on
0: the internet. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, if, if you had to kind of have a magic wand or, or, or see into the future, what are you looking forward to? And in, in the next maybe couple years, what do you think would, would happen? Or, or is there a point in the future where you can see in 10, 15 years that a majority of components can be built by robotics? What's, what's your kind of vision into the future?
2: You know, I think an interesting vision is there, there's a couple of different things that I think could come out of this that would be really good for us as humankind um, and not just, you know, the bottom line on a construction building. Uh, you touched on it in my intro. We focus on jobs that we call the three B's, dirty, dull and dangerous. They're jobs that humans are already migrating out of. Um, there are many health issues that arise from these sorts of jobs. And so as we see people shift out of those into safer jobs that are more fulfilling, uh, I think robotics can really fill that void while still keeping the economy going, right? Still allowing construction to move along. The other thing that I think is really interesting, and this is what what I'm probably most excited about in the next 10 years, is the fact that artificial intelligence is kind of a unique discipline and the fact that every lab across the United States is the very best at some small piece of AI that they specialize in. And so because of that, We are seeing a shift from Silicon Valley-centric thinking to um, hubs of technology popping up everywhere. Uh, From our perspective, we have our eyes very keenly on Denver-Boulder, Austin, as well as Pittsburgh right now. And as we see that happen, we also are not asking people to move to Silicon Valley with their company. We want them to stay near their labs, which are really the best source of recruiting for that particular type of artificial intelligence. And I think that as a nation, that's going to be really helpful in creating new economic centers away from the traditional New York, Boston, uh, San Francisco.
0: Yeah. Well, that's cool. Well, I, I can't leave without asking your, your bigger opinion about AI, uh, art of general intelligence, because I think kind of what you're going, what you're actually in the middle of and practicing, there's so much nuance to every facet that goes together in, into a building to just get Computers and robots to do I don't know fifty percent of that for me seems like it's it's a decade but and and I don't think that I just think that that's so hard how they're gonna figure out AI general intelligence that then can figure out all this I I have no idea but since you are in the industry what are your thoughts about AI and special especially maybe. Let's go bigger to the general intelligence. And do you do you do you have a fear that that's going to kind of wipe out everyone's jobs, not just help with these dirty, dull, and dangerous jobs?
2: Well, so I have, I have a few pieces of commentary on that. So first of all, I, I always like to lean on the well-known fact that technology in general has always created more jobs than it takes. Uh, I always bring up the story about how when we first had cars. There was a lot of panic around what would happen to the people that drove the carriages and looked after the horses. But as we know now, cars led to our national highway system being created and the entirety of the fast food industry. And so we can't think in a linear way of, well, maybe they'll take care of the robots now. Because we really don't know how this is going to unfold and how much um, the technology is going to create a new industry. So I, I really do think that's an important way to look at it. But there is a piece of which I think everyone should be concerned. Um, I'll start with the story of, I was, do you you know Amazon Echo? Uh,
0: Yes. Yep.
2: Yeah. All right. So my husband and I are very early adopters, as I'm sure you're not entirely surprised by. And um, when we first got Amazon Echo, uh, I was working in artificial intelligence uh, at a flying robot industry. And I was becoming increasingly frustrated because my husband had rigged up our entire light system in our house to only be able to work when talking to Alexa. But Alexa couldn't understand me. That's funny. So I ended up getting some beta testing engineers from Amazon, recruited them over to my team uh, because I was running testing at that point. And they heard me talking about this one day at lunch. And they said, oh, don't you know why? Alexa can't hear you. It's because there were no women on the testing team. So they forgot to test for the frequency of a woman's voice. And are are
0: you, I think I know where you're going, but are you getting to a larger point?
2: I am. I am. Right now we as human beings are teaching machines what it means to be a human and there is so little diversity around the table. We see so few women in both the investing and entrepreneurship side. Um, we don't see as much diversity as thought, of thought, even more than just engineers, philosophy majors getting involved. Um, we, we really need to take care of the fact that we're already seeing racism and sexism in artificial intelligence, and we need to be constantly as a society figuring out how to make sure to have a broader set of minds working on this project.
0: And- And I think that leads to a larger point of not only, well, you know, racism or or sexism, but but just the fact that if you miss something... if you miss it, it could be anything it could be hey don't screw into a finger if you see a finger don't screw into it and I know that that's an example that they're, they're probably you know already taken care of but it's the stuff that we can't see the that's that's maybe the danger or maybe it's not the danger but it's the obstacle it's the obstacle that we have to overcome and, and why all these take so much effort um, so I, I'm of the same opinion of, of you and I'm glad that you said it that this is going Going to create more opportunity and it's going to create opportunity that we haven't even solved but it's still for it's still so hard that a lot of work a lot a lot of work needs to be put into it and i i wouldn't be afraid of terminator coming to our doorstep in the next five years maybe let's give it 15 before we start freaking out
2: <laughs> before we all need to succumb to the robotic overlords.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then maybe if they didn't program pictures of women in, all the women will survive. <laughs> <And>
2: then, <laughs> I'm really, I'm really interested in this plan you worked out. I, I had
0: good, good, good. So, uh, any any parting thoughts, ideas, or anywhere you want to point people to uh, while we wrap this up?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think moving fast. And I think the more that we are seeing traditional industries partnering with uh, the the traditional industry companies that choose to partner with technology are going to be those that not only survive, but see an enormous boom in their uh, valuations and revenues. So I think that the time is now. It's not too early to start thinking about how to bring technology into your business. Um, And there's a ton of resources uh, across the nation that you can start figuring out how to get interested in local areas or in local areas of bright robotics technologists around you.
0: Awesome. Well, well, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And it, it's been a great interview. Awesome.